Good evening. This is Cinema 60. On tonight's episode, Bart and Jenna discuss black masculinity in the films of the 60s. I'm asking you to come in with us on some constructive action. Oh, Jesus. Here we go crawling to Washington. Walking straight, my brother. Marching! Again? Thousands and thousands! Again! Hi, Bart. Hi, Jenna. Here we are, another episode of Cinema 60. This should be a good one. This should be a good one because you chose the topic. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're doing uh, black masculinity and civil rights was probably the most exciting thing that was happening in the 60s. Yeah, this episode excited me when you brought it up because, number one, I haven't seen most of the films that we cover in this. And so this was my first time watching a lot of them. And that was awesome. And number two, I find, you know, gender roles in the 60s is always a fascinating topic to me because you're starting out on the decade from the 1950s, which was politically and and, uh, representationally, at least through its media and most certainly through Hollywood, a real cold snap to those more rigid social order that was briefly abandoned during World War II. And that whole overcompensating 1950s definition of masculinity was in many ways perfected by the 1960s were happening. And that masculinity, that definition of masculinity essentially turned into the focal point of society. It was the chief informer of how society should be run and uh, the, you know, the quote unquote natural order of things. Things were really black and white as far as standards that were expected of people you know, a man ran the house and the wife stayed at home and men initiated and desired sex and women provided it when asked and emotions were for wimps unless you, uh, you know, were showing anger. And even then anger had its own rules that came with it, uh, you know, that were either respected or frowned upon depending on when you had your outburst and how. Uh, and of course, all of this stuff in this sort of catch-22 style, all of these ideas tied into that concept that men were natural born leaders Uh, because of these manufactured standards and norms. So one informs the other and it it turns into this just like continually, you know, snowball of just societal pressure and intention. Oh, clearly you've given this some serious thought. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's a really interesting topic. And then when you put the word black in front of that, then suddenly you're you're opening into, uh, you know, a whole other really fascinating and and really interesting and extraordinary extremely important part of 1960s history in American history, which is all of the important breakthroughs that happened for civil rights during uh, the 1960s. And in all of these (laughs) horrific events uh, that I I can only laugh because I literally will cry otherwise, because it is just honestly the most horrifying stuff that happened from, uh, you know, Medgar Evers, all of these, all these assassinations that happened during the 60s, like everything that had been building and and working towards at least from the 40s, even uh, figureheads and groups like CORE or Martin Luther King. Um, all of these things had had built uh, to a boiling point in the 60s. And, and finally, you had some breakthroughs that were actually happening. You had a bunch of college kids like the Student Nonviolent uh, Coordinating Committee or SNCC, uh, who were, you know, founded in the 60s and, and super effective and active in the 60s, including that whole Freedom Summer, which was about sending white and black kids down to Mississippi 
which was just the the most violent and hateful state, especially, you know, in general, quite frankly, but especially towards uh, African-Americans. And, you know, people were being actively suppressed by white leadership. You weren't allowed to vote, even though legally you were allowed to vote, but they had instated all of these voting tests, these sort of uh, educational tests that didn't matter even how educated you were, black or white, it was so specific that if you just couldn't pass it unless you, you know, knew the secret code, essentially, which was just for members of the KKK, I suppose. Even like some of those members were even murdered. You had James Cheney and Andrew Goodman and, and Michael uh, Schwerner, who famously were, were murdered by a group of white supremacists down there, part of, uh, you know, SNCC, uh, before they even went out initially. That was like the first three guys who just set foot in Mississippi got pulled over immediately across the border and, and murdered. And a lot of those guys that killed them didn't even get convicted until the 2000s, just to show you how little cooperation was giving to these completely disgusting acts. But yeah, I mean, so you had Medgar Evers, uh, who directed the NAACP in Mississippi, was murdered in the 60s, and Malcolm X was murdered, and Martin Luther King was murdered, and the and the Black Panthers uh, had their rise and, and the beginning of their fall, quite frankly, in the 60s. Just dozens of people were murdered in the name of civil rights and, and, and murdered by white terrorists. So, <laughs> so all of this, you get this really strange mix of, you know, men feeling this intense social pressure of needing to live up to these semi-impossible standards of masculinity. And then heaped on that is the pressure of being black in a white society and thus being physically barred in many instances from being able to achieve any of those things. And black people, especially those, you know, writing films and, and scripts and, and a lot of these actors involved in these movies that we're going to talk about, they knew damn well that the game was rigged against them. And yet it's interesting that it's still hard for them to escape the social pressures of feeling inadequate, uh, which is what all of these movies touch upon some more so than the other, but they, they all are very much intensely focused on the inadequacy of being a black man in America. And again, that's that's tenfold since they're in this society that is telling them that they're again, quote, naturally inadequate because of the color of their skin. So I'm, I was very excited about this episode. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, these movies were made. We 60s was a time when you know, we're, we're finally able to, to hear these stories about black men. I mean, part of why I chose black masculinity as a subject was um, black femininity is just not <laughs> not addressed in, in movies of the time. All the movies from this time with, the, you know, with black protagonists, are, they're all male, it's all, and, and they all are dealing with these issues of masculinity. And, you know, I guess we have to wait until, uh, I don't know, have we... Maybe we have to wait until the 90s to actually, you know, hear some female black voices. But uh, the 60s were a masculine time, I guess, until the end, towards the end, when the, when the, the women's movement uh, started up a bit. But uh, it's really no choice. If you want to talk about movies with uh, black protagonists, it's, you have to talk about black masculinity. Which is very true, but also kind of funny because the first movie that you chose here was Raisin in the Sun.
which is um, actually, I think the best of all of these movies has the best touching upon uh, female, black female representation, uh, be considering it was written by a, a black woman. Yeah, Lorraine Hansberry wrote it, but clearly Walter is your central character here, and it's very much about him proving himself as a man. You've got rich female characters in the movie and in the play, but its its main subject is how can a, a disenfranchised black man exert his power in society? Yeah, absolutely. So this is, you know, Raisin in the Sun, 1961, directed by Daniel Petrie. And this is a classic. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if you haven't seen this, come on. Why haven't you seen this? I have to actually admit, quite frankly, I the last time I watched this was uh, in college, and I was not looking forward to rewatching this because what I remembered most strongly, I remember liking it, but what I remembered most strongly was just that the whole thing is set in essentially one room, and mm-hmm. it is visually uh, just, you, you can tell that it was a play. It, I remember it being just like really good, but really stagnant. But um, upon rewatching this, I realized actually that it was just 10 times better than I remembered. <laughs> or maybe I have more patience now. Huh. I still find it very stagey. And the drama is, I don't know, I, I don't, don't always find the drama entirely convincing. Um, but it's a great play. And I feel like the movie does a really good job. It, it, most of the original cast is in it. Can tell that these actors know their roles really well. Yeah, you have Sidney Poitier and Claudia McNeil, Ruby Dee, Diana Sands. Particularly Claudia McNeil, I, I think that she uh, she stands out as my younger. I mean, I mean, you've also got Lou Gossett Jr., who really didn't become famous until the '80s with An Officer and a Gentleman and Iron Eagle. He's he's got a smallish role in there, and and Ivan Dixon. The, the star of Nothing But a Man, which we'll talk about later. He's pretty good in this as uh, Asagai, the African, who B shows some uh, romantic interest in. So we, this movie is about the younger family, and the whole extended family is living in this small apartment in uh, Chicago. And so it's uh, Sidney Poitier and Ruby Dee are a married couple. They have a... Uh, young son and they're living with Walter's sister B and his mother Lena and it's the apartment that the younger children grow up in and uh, you know they always felt stifled by it it's uh, it's tiny and, and run down and not in a great neighborhood and their father has has recently died we never meet the character but he's recently died and the mother is expecting a uh, a $10,000 insurance check and they think that this money is going to change their lives completely that it, when it comes that all the opportunities that they've always wanted will be possible once the $10,000 check comes but everybody in the family has a different idea what's going to happen with it Sidney Poitier uh, Walter wants his mother to give him the money so he can invest in a liquor store that he wants to open with his friends and his sister B is going to medical school, so a chunk of it has to be set aside for her education. And the mother turns out really just wants to buy a house and get out of this stuffy apartment that they've always lived in. 
and you know besides that basic plot it's it's kind of just a character study and you get to know these characters yeah it's funny this time around i really focused in on all of the women in this movie because it is it's about walter completely (laughs) Mm -hmm. but he's actually you know the half the scenes he's not even in yeah, there was there was so much more attention paid to the women than I than I remembered, honestly. And I don't know if that's me paying more attention now watching it or or what, but um I really I love this the that you get this generational uh gap mixed with just everyone in this movie is looking for meaning. With Lena, she comes from this older generation where freedom is life, where the fact that she can even own a house or live in a house or even get this amount of money, which is like, that's probably close to 100K in current inflation standards. And she's very focused, it seems, on this generation gap of privilege and the freedom that her kids seem to be so obsessed with comes with capitalism. It's more tied into the amount of money that they have and the amount of money that they can spend. Whereas for her, she's just happy to not be beaten. (laughs) She's happy to be free. She's happy to have anything. And she loves God. And and that's where she derives all of her meaning. Whereas her daughter, B, she's looking for her identity through education and culture. You know, she wants to be a doctor. She takes up expensive hobbies and drops them. She's experimenting. She's dating multiple men. And the one that she really focuses on is this one from Africa. But it's because she's so interested in trying to find her identity through this African man because she wants to connect to something. She uh, even has a moment where she says she doesn't really believe in God and that she thinks that man makes miracles, which, of course, her mother slaps her in the face for. But was pretty that's pretty powerful and interesting drive in 1961 to hear come out of a, a female character's mouth. <laughs> right. Uh, and then... Well, just to have a, a black woman in medical school, fairly unusual, I would imagine. And actually, the way it's discussed in the movie, it's you you, you know that, that B is really going against the grain by, by following this path. She is constantly searching for something and, and, you know, figuring out who she is, but there doesn't seem to be any question in her, in her mind that being a doctor is what she wants to do. And then, and then you have Walter, who is just so caught up in the idea that he needs to be equal to the white man and live up to those standards, which are just, again, tied into wealth and power. You know, he wants to support his family, not as a servant. He has that line about how he wants so many things and opening and closing car doors all day. That's not a job. That's nothing. And is you know, kind of right. If you, you, he dreams of being uh, more powerful and, and being able to support his family. And meanwhile, here he is living in a, a one-bedroom apartment with his mother, his sister, and his wife, and his young son, who has to sleep on the couch. And everyone else, you know, doubling up in rooms because they he can't support them, which... The women don't seem to be so upset about, except, I mean, Ruth, his wife, is miserable. <laughs> she's had it worse, I think, out of all of this because she doesn't have the promise of a future the way that B does. She, she's married. She's stuck. She's stuck in the house, and that's what Walter wants of her, and it's this hovel of an apartment with no sunlight and no bathroom. They have the bathroom in the hallway, old style. Well, the chief source of Ruth's dissatisfaction, it seems, is that Walter is so miserable. Right. He's not the happy-go-lucky family man that he should be because he's so dissatisfied with his life. 
and it seems like the only thing that she really wants is for Walter to find himself, to become the man that he wants to be. You know, she's she's so family-focused, but she's a character without a real arc, unfortunately. She, uh, she ends up getting pregnant, and she doesn't want to bring a baby into this family in this one-room apartment where Walter, her husband, is so miserable and clearly doesn't want another child or clearly thinks that there's no way they can afford another child and he, he has to he has to make it big before they could even, you know, think about having another child. So, you know, the idea of abortion comes up there and she wrestles with that. So you, you get some insight into her character there. But uh, really, her happiness seems to depend on Walter's happiness. Yeah, and unfortunately, his happiness is so caught up in that, in his sense of masculinity, which is just not going to happen for him, unfortunately, because of the way that everything's rigged against him. But that's exactly why he makes all of these terrible decisions, too, which is sad and, and unfortunate. But his mother, you know, he's so miserable at the fact that he can't, quote, be a man, that he's drinking himself to death instead of actually being a man, <laughs> instead of actually standing up and doing whatever good he can and finding whatever good he can and, you know, and working towards something, which... But you feel for him. I mean, he makes all these dumb decisions because he's chasing a, a dream that he thinks he can achieve through tricks, essentially. He thinks that he can he can cheat the system in order to obtain the future that he wants, which, of course, he can't. And for many reasons, he does have everything stacked against him. <laughs> Naivete is really his big problem. I mean, he's got a whole business plan with this liquor store, and it's not like he's trying to swindle anybody. He really thinks that he can trust these guys that he's partnering up with and this business model will really work and it doesn't end up working out in the end and it's not necessarily a racial issue. It's not being oppressed by white people that keeps him from achieving this very particular dream. It's him being naive and too trusting and just sort of being blind to any downsides, just being so focused, just his eyes are too much on the prize. He's too focused on, on his ultimate goals to, to be aware of, of any things that could possibly go wrong, like his friends stealing his money from him. I mean, I think ultimately it still is white people's fault that he can't do it <laughs> because, you know, he couldn't do this stuff without having been given this chunk of money, whereas other people probably could have gotten a business loan. He can't. And then he ends up, you know, running with these swindlers, basically, trying to get things, you know, like, oh, no, it's the only way you can get a, a license to do this is to pay a guy off, which I think That's he wouldn't true, have yeah. felt forced to do if he had been at least in a, in a better economic place, which, you know, is tied into that. Not that there's no poor white people, but he had a better chance of being in a better place had he been white. And there's definitely a huge, there's a whole, the whole thing about them buying this house and then this white housing society what what are they called uh the improvement association yeah those creeps come over and and essentially say that uh you know you, you don't belong here and, and we'll buy your house even for more money than you've paid because we don't want to look at you every day which is just another knife in the back you know after thinking oh finally i've, I've achieved something finally i can provide for my family and, and the world just comes right on in and takes it away from him again i've always found that to be the most memorable scene in the play in the movie is when this this very pleasant white gentleman comes over. I forget the actor's name, but he's the voice of Piglet from the <laughs> from the Winnie the Pooh movies. 
And, you know, he very kindly suggests that, you know, it's better for us, it's better for you, it's better for everybody. So why does this have to be a problem? Just take the money and don't buy this house because you know, we don't want black people in our neighborhood. And it takes the youngers a while to realize even what he's suggesting. He comes in and he's so pleasant that they think that maybe he is just the welcome wagon and he's there to say, oh, welcome, you know, we're happy to have you in the neighborhood. And, and uh, you know, it turns out that, that uh, now he's just uh, another racist white man who's uh, trying to keep them down and what I love so much about that scene is that when he leaves the youngers all just have a laugh about it I mean it's just so galling that this man could come into their apartment and suggest that they oh you know it's better for everybody if you don't move in so you know let's let's be friendly about it you know rather than getting angry like their first response is just to laugh and say what what just happened why can you believe that this guy just just came in here and said that. And I I find that to be one of the realest moments in the movie. Oh, totally. And then you have the grandmother saying, oh, oh, one of those types. Like they don't even explain to her what happened. They 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 allude to it and she knows it. She picks up on it immediately. What I don't buy is when Walter loses the money, loses the, the 10000 or $6,000 or however much it is that he's given to his friend to invest in the in the uh, the liquor store and he um he has his breakdown and it's very theatrical and uh the, you know it's moments like that that I, I think you know besides the fact that it's all it all takes place in one apartment and it's very stagey it's just got certain dramatic beats that that don't quite work in a movie i don't think definitely and it's funny because the same issue happens with the next movie here, which was um, Gone Are the Days from Pearly Victorious, written by Ossie Davis, who's also the star and the lead character named Pearly Victorious. Also found out it was adapted into a musical in the in the 70s called Pearly. I'd like to get my hands on that sometime. But this movie is not only stagey, but it's got such a low budget that it's it really looks like nothing but the actors from the stage play coming onto a, a studio set and them just turning the cameras on and filming the play. <laughs> yeah, this is the beginning. It's funny. We have uh, Raisin in the Sun is low budget, clearly, or maybe they, they really just wanted to confine it to that, maybe even two sets in the whole thing. Three. There's three. There's the bar. But... Um, well, and then they, I, I forgot there were actually some outdoor scenes in Raisin in the Sun. Right. That, that surprised me when they went to the house and we actually saw some sunlight. But, but Gone Are the Days is this, it, immediately the budget falls off very, I like, I never would have guessed. Had you just shown me this film, I never would have guessed that this was made in the 1960s, if not for its very specifically progressive social politics. It looks like the 40s. It, it really is like clearly adapted from a stage play and uh, it almost like cardboard sets falling over Doctor Who style. Yeah, I mean, it's it's almost shocking when the NAACP and the March on Washington is mentioned in the movie because you, you forget, oh, right, this is this is contemporaneous. This is this is supposed to be happening You know, when this movie was made. I mean, and that's part of the point of the movie as well. It's that uh, 
this family of sharecroppers who are living on the on the land of the family that owned them in you know, previous generations as as slaves and and this uh, you know, old what's his name old Captain Stonewall Jackson Kachapi is sort of this old Southern gentleman who uh, is really stuck in the old ways and one of those racists that's that's so racist that he has no idea that he's racist. And it's another story where it all kind of revolves around this amount of money that's necessary to make a purchase. In this case, uh, Pearlie is uh, not an actual reverend, I don't think, but he, he sort of plays the role of one. And uh, he wants to buy the church in their little town that has gone up for sale, but he wants to uh, buy it with some inherited money of a cousin of his who has died. So he he finds uh, this girl, played by Ruby D, Ludie Bell Gussie Mae Jenkins, and gets her to pose as his cousin and, and to try and get this $500 that's being held for the cousin by old Captain. Yeah, and it's a satire. Yeah, it's actually, it made me laugh quite a bit, especially Godfrey Cambridge. I thought yes. he was really funny as Gitlow. Really funny. There's a there's so many good lines in this, actually, and it was interesting because part of it is that this is such a broad satire in a way that also honestly feels a little out of date. <laughs> and the play, this was based on a play that I think was only from a, a year before or something. It's not like this was an older play that was now adapted. This was the time that it was written and, and then made into a movie, but there were so many good lines in this, like Pearlie has that line about how white folks put black on their faces for minutes and make millions. Here I am, born with this stuff, and I can't make a dime. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You're like, yeah, man. <laughs> Ozzie Davis is great. He's so charismatic in this role. He's just a fast-talking, sort of a con man, but, you know, a lovable con man. He has a lot of broad caricatures in this and, and stereotypes, and some of them can get a little, like, ho-hum. <laughs> Like Godfrey Cambridge as Gitlow, he kind of, they go through this almost blackface sort of physical humor, but then everything that comes out of, and, and he plays this step and fetch it kind of character to the white guys. Yes, Massa, no Massa. But then, you know, when they're not looking, he rolls his eyes. And yeah. Shows that it's all an act. It's just, uh, you know, that's it's the only way he knows how to survive in this world. It's a, he's the one that has a line about some of the best lying is done in front of white folks. <laughs> Because that was great, too, where, where uh, Ruby D, who, who was also um, Aussie's wife. And a, a big civil rights activist, too, Ruby D. Well, they both were, but Ruby D in particular was almost, her acting career was almost secondary to a lot of the activism she was doing. And unfortunately, her character in this is sort of uh, a little too broad for me. She plays this very yeah. dopey, uneducated woman who just is bright-eyed and She's meant to be sort of comic relief, I suppose. And, and she was something I thought was just uh, like it would have been more fun if you had really given her more to work with. She's a good actress. You could have done it, but. You keep uh, expecting her to reveal you know, these hidden depths, but she never, you know, she's kind of this wide eyed, innocent, uneducated person from the beginning to the end and, you know, can't even play along with the con game. Yeah, she signs the wrong name when she's she's there to lie about who she is, and, and that's how they get this money. And then when the time comes for her to sign that I am indeed this person, she signs her real name instead of the fake name of the cousin, which, you know, 
really puts a wrench in things. I can see what what Ossie Davis was aiming for with this movie. It felt very much like slam with humor sort of approach to systematic racism. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, it's it's dumbed down enough for white people to laugh and get it. And then I can't help but feeling that black people are probably laughing even harder as certain things are going to go over white people's heads. And also, full disclosure, we're both, Bart and I are not black, so I'm sure there's plenty of nuance that we lose for most of all of these movies, quite frankly, but... Well, I mean, you've got Alan Alda in his uh, first film here, and he's playing a, a woke Southern boy, but, uh, you know, what that means in this in this world in, in 1963, he still, you know, definitely doesn't understand what it means to be black in this world. He's sympathetic, but just assumes... Oh, you know, you get this money and everything will be fine. Or, you know, he's he's another very naive character who means well. But he makes the whole plot come together in the end. But he's really pretty clueless for all his uh, good-naturedness. It reminds me of Phil Oak's song, Love Me, I'm a Liberal. About, you know, I go to civil rights rallies and uh, I love Harry and Sidney and Sammy. But don't talk about revolution. That's going a little too far kind of guy. He, he's he's interested. He's sympathetic. But he, there's only so much he really understands, uh, especially about him his own privilege. He's, he's sympathetic to the fact that black people have it hard, but he's not hip to how easy he has it and how much he could be helping if he actually held others to higher standards. But that's one of the great kind of parts of this. The, the movie's very aware of that. And, and Alan Alda does a good job as the sort of dumb guy. <laughs> Charlie. The only thing about this, though, and, and as it relates to masculinity, I mean, number one, Pearlie is a very typical masculine character. He's, he's in charge. He is fast-talking. He is coming up with schemes that are beneficial for the whole community he's definitely not a bad guy even though i agree he's a bit of a snake oil salesman yeah a little bit but he has a good heart but there were two things that were kind of a bummer about this which i think that the movie is is aware of mostly that he needs a white man to save the day otherwise he's powerless which is kind of a bummer (laughs) but in the end he wins and because he gets this white guy to, to come on board with him, which I, th- I you know, it seems to be a, a, a message in some ways, but also is it's that sort of double-edged sword of, well, if white people just were, were hip to this and we could get some shit done, but also it's kind of a bummer that we have to rely on white people. <laughs> it's an odd turn of events at the end because we're supposed to believe that Pearlie is going to go and beat old Catton to death. And he does, but not on the dotted line. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe Pearly would have gotten exactly what he wanted himself, but it would have meant the murder of a white man, which could only you know lead to more trouble. But Charlie sort of saves the day by preventing that necessity, saving Pearly from having to turn to homicide to get what he needs. And that's that's actually a subject that keeps coming back, and especially as we move on with these movies that we talk about, it's. You know, should we let uh, white people help us or should we do it ourselves? Should we follow Martin Luther King's teachings and, and be nonviolent and be all about passive resistance? Or should we be more about active resistance and actually take up arms and, and start a revolution against white people? And uh, it's sort of even early on in, in this movie, it's uh, playing a role Yeah, and that was the other thing that was a little weird about this movie was to come out with a satire about Jim Crow laws. (laughs) 
1963. It it's good because the, like it was funny. I bet this is an awesome play for sure. The movie was very low budget, which hurts it in a lot of ways. But the acting's good, and the, again, the writing's really funny. But to compare it to people being actually murdered, especially in 63 and especially in the South, and then to have the chief bad guy essentially be like KFC's Colonel Sanders, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's it, it's funny. It's good as far as humor, but it, it almost feels a little too broad for something that is really serious in, in my mind. But it's also a way to address these issues and have it reach a, a broader audience. Sure. Perhaps um, by treating it with a certain amount of lightness and, and saying, you know, why, you know, can, can't we all just come together and laugh about this and, and move forward? You know, s- satire can, I mean, I wouldn't say it's a particularly vicious satire just because it's so heavy handed or it's so broad. There's not a whole lot of acid in it, but it really, I mean, it definitely deals with some pretty heavy issues. I mean, you, you say it would make a good, stage play but i feel like the female characters not just ludie bell but missy and idella who are both strong women but they don't have very interesting roles really well who needs women (laughs) (laughs) yeah this is is about black masculinity (laughs) well how about the cool world talking about women is the next movie that we watched for 1963 which is directed by shirley clark who is white but jewish yeah and we'll we'll find that those are uh, all the people (laughs) yeah pretty much the majority of these movies are directed by white jews rather than directed by black people we we finally get to one by the end but i I mean something that we need to address is that these plays were out there written by black people but it took white people who are already sort of entrenched in the business to to actually get these things to to get put on screen and even then with such low budgets i mean the cool world and granted it could have been the copy that we watched was basically a vhs <laughs> rip so it was pretty bad but the the quality of that and and maybe i hope it looks better if someone's restored this somewhere but it's very clearly low budget Yeah, well, it's shot documentary style, so I think part of that was budgetary, that it costs a lot less to just use the lights that are in the room and uh, capture reality than to create this this artificial world. And, like, no sound recording. (laughs) (laughs) But it's, I mean, what's so odd about this is this was based on a novel that was turned into a play, and this movie doesn't feel literary at all. There's the main character, Duke, who's a very young... A 15, I think, um, gang member who wants to take the reins of the, the leadership of this gang away from Blood, who's an alcoholic drug addict, just, you know, messed up guy who, who is too out of it all the time to properly lead this gang. They're in Harlem, and this drama, I mean, there's definitely a, a clear story going on in this movie, but it's shot in such a documentary style that all the events that happen, you know, seem accidental. Like it doesn't feel plotted until the end. You realize, oh, there, you know, there really was a story here. And I think that's what's really interesting about this movie. I mean, it's it's 
an experiment of sorts, and it's not an entirely successful experiment, but I love what it was trying to do. Well, I think, yeah, and she mixes some actual documentary street shots with this. She's actually giving you what people are doing on a, on a day-to-day basis, intercut with this a story that, that they've planned out here, which, yeah, is is really loose. It almost comes down to, like, it reminded me of Romeo and Juliet, but kind of without the romance. <laughs> Because they're so young, they're so young, all these these kids in this movie, that's like the main thing that I focused on is that there's scenes where Duke goes to see a prostitute and the prostitute's 16 too. And it's it's disturbing, which is the point, essentially. This is interesting. I this I didn't entirely I thought this movie was really hard to watch, quite frankly. There was a degree of just low budgetness and I think the print that we uh saw that was just really grating in a lot of ways, but then there's some moments of brilliance in this. Well, the best parts were the just straight up documentary parts. The opening shot of the preacher on the street screaming about how Jesus was black and white is the absence of color. I was like, this is going to be a great movie. (laughs) Yeah, it starts off strong. And I wonder if his speech was even in the original play or novel. It seems to me that she just caught this guy on the street who was preaching this uh, semi-coherent, religious, rebellious rising up of the people against their oppressors sort of thing. And either way, it makes for a good start. And and whenever the movie focuses just on these random people on the street where just a camera's been turned on to the people who live in this neighborhood in, in, in Harlem, which is very, very run down at this point, uh, I mean, now Harlem is, is super gentrified and it's, you know, these areas that even you know, when I was living down there 15 years ago, you know, it was so much nicer than it looks in this movie. And, uh, and from what I understand, it's it's even... It's all white people now. <laughs> yeah, if you, if, you don't, if you don't have a lot of money, you can't live in Harlem anymore. Yeah, that was one of the, the most interesting parts of this is that there's maybe one, there's one white character with lines that isn't a cop in this movie who is a sort of drugged out woman, girlfriend of this um, head gang member. She's Priest's girlfriend. So a lot of the plot focuses on Duke trying to get up enough money to buy a gun from Priest, who's this older, he's an adult, who is involved in these really like sketchy deals, you know, it's never even very clear like what kind of nasty business he's up to but uh but duke is trying to buy a gun from priests so he can show his strength against blood the leader of his gang the royal pythons and you get the sense that priest's girlfriend is essentially the reason that she's white is because it's almost a luxury even though she's this really drugged out hopeless weird woman that clearly needs help but she sits there uh, on the bed with this big great dane and he has the only nice apartment in the whole film which isn't saying too much but what's interesting too is that it really it shows you this disconnect with the world that's happening in harlem and the rest of new york city and in the beginning of this film there's this really great scene too where all of these black kids are piling onto a school bus and as they're taking this bus down to wall street from harlem and as someone who lives in New York, to, to get from Harlem to Wall Street on a bus, I mean, like, what? That's like 30 minutes unless there's, like, a ton of traffic or something. I mean, it'd be even faster if there was no other cars in the place. You could probably do it in 15 minutes. 
Yeah, I love how they go straight down Fifth Avenue, right? To, right to yeah, it's really. I mean, it's it's not that far, and yet here they are. You know, tourists in the in their own city. They have the teacher pointing out all of these like just major New York City things, and all the kids looking at it like, huh? Not really acknowledging it, or or like you get the sense that this is being pointed out to them for the first time, or this this is maybe even the first time they've seen it, which can happen. <laughs> In New York still to this day, it's funny enough, weirdly, but you, you do, you know, people live in their own little neighborhoods and they don't leave. So it, I thought that was really fascinating. And, and then the fact that this film just entirely focuses only on black characters and only on Harlem and only on this world where, yeah, it's about gangs, which I, I, I kind of feel like it, it's interesting. The novel was written by a white guy and it's it's a weird film because it's a bit narrow and it's focus on like violent black youth which i can't imagine was doing any favors to <laughs> anyone really in in the in the 60s but at the same time it's also i guess showing this this part of society that's ignored and it's definitely an empathetic film you're rooting for the the characters to get out of it but then you have the you know duke is just trying to perpetuate the system he's has this obsession with guns and his obsession with guns comes from his obsession with power you know the whole thing cool world and his definition of cool is uh, having a gun and that's his only thing but he's also 16 you know like when you're 16 that's what you think cool is well the music's pretty cool too <laughs> it's got a, a, a near constant score uh, by Dizzy Gillespie, right? I think there it may be Dizzy Gillespie and someone else. One of the first movies we talked about, the Warped Ones, the Japanese movie where it's these these youths, you know, committing crimes to a constant jazz score was a, I, I was kind of reminded of that. This reminded me of the Warped Ones because of the scene at the beach where Duke takes his girlfriend who's the prostitute and and she says she's never seen the ocean. She wants to go to California to see the ocean, not realizing that the ocean is like right at the end of the subway line. (laughs) And he takes her down there and then she just disappears, which is disturbing. Although we do get uh, a few scenes of these two young people having a good time in Coney Island and, and, you know, just playing the games and going on the rides. And it's sort of the one respite from this ugliness of the neighborhood they live in. But then uh, Luann disappears just to escape, we assume. I don't think we necessarily think anything awful has happened to her. I kind of thought something awful happened to her. <laughs> <laughs> but the, there was nothing in the film that lets you know that other than he's searching for her and he can't find her. I really loved the final fight in this movie where they get a gun and they have this fight that's on a playground. And it's literally on a playground. It's through the monkey bars and on seesaws, which is so fitting for teenagers. <laughs> Yeah. You know, they they look like children and here they are playing on a, a, a the most obvious metaphor. It's like they're playing on a swing set, but they're killing each other. And then he gets arrested for murder by the cops. And now he's cool. The last thing you see is him being hauled off by the cops and people on the street whispering about, oh, he's cool. He's cool. And so here he is. He gets the thing that he was fighting for, which is nothing. He gets nothing. So it kind of shows you this, there's only so many paths for these kids to go and that they, they're stuck in this cycle of not having any way out because his, and his whole family gets murdered. <laughs> I didn't mention that, but he essentially ends up in a place where, well, everyone's dead or gone or left me. So what else am I going to do except for try and get this gun and become the king? 
And yeah, great. And then you end up in, in jail or dead. So it's, it's pretty depressing. But at least he's cool. At least he's a man. Yeah, definitely. There's, again, that, that toxic masculinity. Also, this was produced by Frederick Wiseman before he had made his first feature documentary. He, was, he produced this semi-documentary for Shirley Clark. But, uh, but now we move on to Nothing But a Man, which is, I've actually seen it a couple times before, and I really like this movie a lot. Oh, precious life, take my hand, take my hand. Let me stand, stand. I'm so tired of weak, and I want a lot, I want a lot, I want a lot, 1964, directed by Michael Romer, who made one other film that didn't really go anywhere, was kind of buried for two decades, and so he, uh, I think he became a professor or something. And he was born in Berlin and escaped the Nazis. Right, which is why I think he wrote this story with Robert M. Young, another Jewish fellow, who it was as much Robert M. Young's movie as, as Michael Romer's. He he shot the film and co-wrote it with him, and you know basically it was co-directed. So that they sh- they really should have equal billing as the creators of this film. Uh, and Robert M. Young actually went on to have a semi-successful directing career. And made a bunch of movies with Edward James Olmos, and it's a an original work written by these guys. They took a tour of the South. They sort of had an inkling of an idea for the story and and then went from family to family down in in the South and sort of collected stories from them about what it's like being black in the South and uh, sort of created the story around it. And uh, I think it's got everything I could want from a movie. I imagine it's a little bit too depressing for you, too downbeat. It was too male for me (laughs) (laughs) i didn't like their portrayal of masculinity but it's it's 100 it is 60 this is like almost the apex of 60s masculinity in this film yeah abby lincoln is uh was a famous singer actually at this point and she i actually don't know if she's done very much acting but she's uh, she's a little stiff in this I think her character is kind of interesting, and she becomes very likable, but the the movie is, is definitely completely revolving around Duff Anderson, played by Ivan Dixon, who played Asagai in uh, Raisin in the Sun, and who I've known since I was a kid because he was Kinch on uh, Hogan's Heroes, and I always loved him on that. So I don't think he had much of a, of a movie career, but he is a very recognizable actor, mainly because of his Hogan's Heroes Stint. He also went on to direct a lot of TV in a, in a movie called uh, Spook Who Sat by the Door from the 70s. It was a controversial uh, movie when it came out. It was kind of removed from theaters because it was so controversial. Um, I feel like I've summarized all the plots so far. Can I hear your take on this one? Honestly, I think this is sort of a movie about toxic cycles and masculinity. Duff Anderson works for the railroad, so he has this sort of high-paid but traveling job where he just is constantly working with a set group of guys. And they go down to Alabama, and while everyone else goes to the bar to drink and maybe talk to a very sad prostitute, he decides to go to church. And there he meets Josie, 
who is the preacher's daughter, played by Abby Lincoln. And she's very sweet, and he decides that he wants to take her out on a date, and she thinks that he's intriguing, even though her family is already frowning upon it because he's this outsider and an unknown. They go out on a date, and she essentially, <laughs> one thing leads to another. He actually has a line where he says, either we get married or we hit the hay, like or, or we bone. And she sort of rebuffs him, but ends up running away with him and el- eloping with him. Then, unfortunately, their life kind of just spirals out of control from there. They they end up having this house where he wants her to stay at home and be a wife, and that's it. And he now has to go find a job somewhere in town. And unfortunately, they're just really... Either they don't want to hire a black man, or they don't. They completely underpay him dramatically from what he was making on the train tracks. And you see him kind of going from job to job, and one of the jobs where everyone's black but they're all mistreated and and they have to sort of tip their hat to the the one white guy who works there and when he sort of suggests that they stick together not even totally unionizing though it's it's sort of implied with it but when he tells everyone hey why don't we stick up for ourselves he gets fired immediately and, and ratted out by other the other black people in the in the group and so essentially the film just watches duff losing control and spiraling out of control because he can't get a job and he can't keep a job and he can't keep the job because of really legitimate circumstances where everyone's just horrible. <laughs> yeah. He's got too much pride. He, he wasn't really aware of, of the small town racism. It's not, you know, it's not like he hasn't had to deal with racism all his life, but the way it reveals itself in this uh, small town where, uh, well, there hasn't been a lynching in seven years. Yeah. Only seven years. Yeah. As an outsider, he just, you know, he's punished for sticking up for himself it's a situation where you can't blame him for behaving the way he does because why would anybody want to be treated as poorly as black people are treated by whites in this town? Right. And so, yeah, it is a bit of a downward spiral. White people think that blacks are less than, and, and uh, he doesn't agree, but uh, you know, you get constantly put down by the man, and, and you start to believe that these things that they're saying about you, and he sort of becomes this, you know, he, he becomes a person that he hates. He's, you know, it's just this, you know, self-loathing that kind of spirals out of control, and uh, he's got uh, a son in uh, in Birmingham that may or may not be his, and he he sends money every so often he's got an alcoholic father with one bad arm who he hasn't seen and since he was a kid really i guess and uh, so he you know when he's in birmingham he sort of meets his father for the first time and his his woman uh lee played by gloria foster who i i think i think she's a pretty interesting character she's great and the his father is just pretty miserable drunken jerk who wants nothing to do with duff and Duff sees himself kind of falling into his father's footsteps, you know, unwittingly. Like he just, you know, either he just turns into a a yeser kind of guy and, uh, you know, takes a low-paying job in a factory or he hits the bottle and uh, just becomes a, a complete loser. That's what I really liked about this movie was those cycles from the deadbeat dad who teaches his son to be wary of love and... That's something that, you know, is a real sticking point. He doesn't want to get married. And then when he does, things start to go out of control. And it's almost a sort of self-fulfilling prophecy because he doesn't trust it. Uh, And then you have Duff, who is perpetuating all these acts of violence and frustration that are being 
done onto him by white people, he's then taking it out on his wife. Suddenly he, you know, this woman that he was really sweet and loving relationship with, and that's all that she needs. That's all that she wants from him is to trust her and be happy to be with her. And he is until he isn't. And then he starts to hit her, which is the most shocking moment of the film. They, they really pay a lot of weight to that and that snap in him and, and seeing him, you know, that, that he feels so bullied in life, he has to start bullying his wife is, is definitely a huge part of that. And then you also have the cycle too, even larger pulling out is that they have all these people that are still hanging around the South when it's such a, an intolerable and, and horrible environment. But then again, what do you do if it's all you know and this is where you live? Why should you give up and, and leave because of these awful people? But then again, now you're stuck in it. Now now you're forced to you know make less money and you're forced to feel miserable and, and be berated constantly and maybe start drinking and hitting your wife. It's this, you know, it kind of happens. But that's the other thing that kind of annoyed me about this is that there's such a heavy duty paid to this idea that, you know, that men have to be men. And uh, if he can't support his wife, like he, there's a scene where Josie suggests that maybe she she can get it. She's pregnant and she suggests, well, I can get some day work. I can I can work a couple shifts somewhere and, and clean some houses. And he gets so angry that he destroys a chair that he's fixing. Not that they have the money to buy a new chair. And chairs are expensive, goddammit. And... He just destroys this thing out of just like this frustrated spat. And it's scary because it's the type of thing where you're not sure if he's going to start taking that kind of level of violence out on her. But it's also this just like, all right, like what, dude, come on. <laughs> Let her get the job if she wants it. But I also understand that this is, again, this idea that this is that all empowering uh, 60s masculinity and, and that he can't live up to it and that there's so much societal pressure to live up to it. And the idea that he would accept help from his wife is to accept that he's not a, a full man. Well, I mean, he leaves his job at the railroad because he has this sort of ideal of what being a man is. And he's tired of life on the road and, and spending all his time with these guys who just like to get drunk and go to prostitutes. And that's why he's not even a churchgoer. He goes to church because he just wants to get away from that world. And he wants to take Josie out because she's the kind of nice girl who could be the, the sort of perfect wife. So he can be this family man and settle down in this small town and just have this, you know, ideal, like, 50s style suburban life the patriarchal nuclear family and he already like thinks that he's not good enough for her, right you know on their first date he says why why did you agree to go out with me i'm you're you're such a nice girl and i'm this rough and tumble worker this outsider and you know she says oh you you don't think much of yourself do you and that's that seed is is there right from the beginning of the movie where it's him not thinking much of himself and not being able to create any self-esteem for himself. The fact that she is willing to, you know, sees the good in him and sees the, that he could be a, a family man sort of is, you know, sort of builds his pride up a bit, but he can never, in the, in the life that he tries to create for himself in this small town, he can't ever live up to that ideal that he has in his head. But then he finds that he takes his identity from this marriage, which quickly turns toxic when he starts to perpetuate just what his concept of marriage is. Because I doesn't even he tells her that she doesn't even know how to what living is as a woman or something like that. I, I, you know, and that comes when, 
he's really frustrated about how he's being treated by white people on the job, which again is completely valid. And she has this line about, you know, they can't touch me inside. They can physically hurt me, but they can't hurt my soul. And he says, no, they can reach right in there and turn you on and off. Like, cause he's lived it. He, he that's definitely something that he's had that experience with and, and knows just how soul crushing it is to have someone else look you in the eye and, and not see you, not see you as a human being. But then I, it's like, I kind of take what she's saying from that sort of, she's speaking from this more of a, a Christian place of, of understanding and his anger is just super misplaced because he starts to berate her for it, buying into this, this you know, now living in this world that white men have created uh, in, in the slot that he has in, in that world, which of course is very low. Yeah, and it's sort of their relationship sort of shows again that dichotomy that we're seeing in this whole, in, in all of these movies, this idea where, you know, you should find the strength in yourself to accept, you know, just the, the whole king versus X dichotomy is, uh, you know, should we be nonviolent, passively resistant, and, you know, find the strength in ourselves to endure and show, show our strength in other ways and not let the white people, you know, their their awfulness, to not let the awfulness of, of white people ruin your life, to, you know, sort of find the pride in yourself, as opposed to Duff, who, who wants to rise up. And at no point does he ever show any violence towards white people in this movie he will you know he'll stick up for himself he'll uh he'll refuse to you know clean the windshield of some jerk off who's calling him racist names but he doesn't raise a hand to anyone and but until he finally takes out his you know massive frustration on his wife but yeah i think it's just interesting how that dichotomy is in in all of these movies that we're watching was it in the next one? <laughs> I guess it was. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah, and talk about downward spiral movies. The next movie we watched was A Man Called Adam. Sammy Davis Jr. plays a famous trumpeter or cornet player, right? Adam Johnson. And can I just say that this is definitely a Rat Pack movie? Well, it's it's got Peter Lawford. And Frank Sinatra Jr., which counts as a Frank Sinatra in my mind. And so that means that you have three members of the Rat Pack in this film. So I'm going to go ahead and say it's a Rat Pack movie. If you can call movies with just Frank and Dean Rat Pack, I'm going to call this one a Rat Pack movie. But this is so much more serious-minded than anything the Rat Pack ever did. Oh, yeah, 100%. <laughs> but it's also just as melodramatic. Yeah, in a brilliant way. Uh... Like it's, it's high camp. I think it's wonderful. I was very entertained by this movie, and I hate downward spiral-type movies, but we're you know, talking about two in a row that I actually really liked. Directed by Leo Penn, who was, at this point, back in with Hollywood after being uh, kicked out for many years. Yeah, he was blacklisted. Leo Penn, the father of Sean and Chris Penn, and Michael Penn, the musician. He didn't have much of a directing career, really, because I think the... Because this movie wasn't good. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think his left leanings kind of nipped his career in the bud, and he couldn't quite make his way back in. I'm really surprised you liked this movie as little as you did. I really liked parts of this movie. 
This is I don't, I'm actually surprised that this isn't a, a more well-known film considering. I mean Sammy Davis Jr. and Louis Armstrong <laughs> are both in this with like really intense roles and Ossie Davis is back here. Cicely Tyson is pretty memorable in it as a uh, kinky-haired woman, someone who's uh, been working for the, the NAACP and you know fighting for civil rights for you know, a few years before Adam meets her in this movie. Civil rights plays a really strong background role. It's always kind of present there, even though on the surface it's just the sort of typical story of this brilliant jazz musician who can't get his shit together thanks to like, drug and, and, you know, alcohol addiction and just you know, self-loathing because he feels responsible for the death of his wife and child. And it sort of goes all the places you expect troubled artist movies to go but civil rights is always present at all times because of this character claudia who uh, he meets uh, is actually the granddaughter of louis armstrong who's playing sweet daddy ferguson who is basically just louis armstrong <laughs> and he's sort of come out of retirement because there's this renewed interest in the kind of music that he uh, plays and so he and adam kind of st strike up a bit of a professional uh, friendship and there's not a whole lot of story here. It's basically just Adam having good days and having bad days, mostly bad days. It, it starts with him uh, throwing a fit at a uh, at a drunken guy in the, in the audience who's heckling him to play some upbeat music, and uh, so he storms off the stage, and his band has had just about enough of him. And He kind of reminded me of Chet Baker. <laughs> yeah, his music was kind of, especially whenever he would sing. I mean, when he sings, he definitely sounds like Sammy Davis Jr., but the style is, is pretty Chet Baker-ish. Oh, sure. But just even and the drinking and the mood swings and, and the character reminded me of Chet Baker more so. I, but then again, there's a lot of angry, drunk geniuses and jazz, I suppose. <laughs> the thing I found really interesting, there's a couple of things I, I really liked about this movie. Number one, I think Sammy Davis Jr. is giving it his all and... In a great way. Oh, yeah. He's he, fantastic. He was shooting for the stars. I, I mean, I think if this was a studio movie, if this wasn't just... It was released by Embassy Pictures, which is, you know, a fairly big independent company in the 60s, but still an independent production. Yeah, our budget's getting higher as we get towards the end of the 60s here. Yeah, but it... I mean, I think that's why we've never heard of A Man Called Adam, because if one of the major studios had put it out, it would at least be present. It would get revived. We'd see it on TCM all the time, or, you know, there'd just be a lot more awareness of it, especially with the star power in it. The thing that annoyed me about this, because it, it it's like part of what I, I liked about it and, and why I was so disappointed with this was just that it was really interesting to see a black man who's achieved white levels of buying power and how he's still just a black man in the eyes of all the white people. And essentially that, you know, capitalism is this ultimate, is meant to be the ultimate equalizer. And it sort of is actually because he has this power. There's multiple scenes where he's flashing money at white people just to embarrass them. And the second that they try to talk down to him, he throws a hundred dollar in their face and walks out and he gets the upper hand that way. Or there's a scene where he makes Peter Lawford crawl on the ground after he breaks a bottle of whiskey at him in, in his own office, <laughs> after he dares to suggest that Adam should tour the South. And he proves his point. I mean, to be fair, his Manny, played by Peter Lawford, is not, you know, the color of Adam's skin has nothing to do with the way he's treating him. I, you get the impression that all of his musicians are just product or just paychecks for him. Yeah. Like he, 
But at the same time, the fact that he could do that and not get fired, it's because he's so talented and also because he makes that money. And especially for a black guy, to, to that's that was such a, a huge, that's like the most power anyone in any movie that we've watched so far has had <laughs> to make a white man crawl on his hands and knees on, on in his own office in front of him. That's wild and that's capitalism. But then the thing that sucks about this movie is just that, I mean, it's there, but they don't focus on it. And all of the dialogue in this film is expository. Every single line in this movie Instead of just treating Adam like a, a drug addict who maybe is just angry, at the, actually in the way that the last movie, Nothing But a Man did so well, where you see this character who's totally content and happy spiral at the way after the, the world treats him so poorly, Adam could have easily been that character. And instead they have to give all this dumb backstory about how he was drinking and he killed his wife and child. And that's why he started drinking and then racism and then money and then this and then that. And then now he has a girlfriend. It's like there's so many things that are happening with Adam. Well, we're in like Circean melodrama here. <laughs> nothing but a man is a, is more is a slice of life type of thing. But I, I, I think there's nothing in this movie. You know, you talk about the expository dialogue and the the absurd backstory but it's nothing that you don't see in any you know other melodrama of this time and it you know it's sort of clumsy but it's also you know it's it's a racial incident that sets adam to drinking and he's drunk when he drives the car that kills his wife and child and blinds last one of his bandmates and i think what i like most about this movie is that jazz is like the great unifier and it's like the, you get into these jazz clubs and it's like this integrated utopia where everybody is just having a good time, white, black. They're all just enjoying the music and nobody cares, you know, the, what the color of the skin of the person next to them is. And it's and, you know, Vincent, his little protege, Frank Sinatra Jr., who Adam is teaching him how to play trumpet. You know, they're, they're so close and there's never any kind of consideration of race between the two of them because jazz is sort of this great unifier. And I think Adam thinks that the music is sort of what puts him above everything else. Like he thinks he's protected from racism because he's he's this great genius and also that just the music brings everybody together. But when he's touring the South several years ago and there's, um, you know, this racist cop who uh, won't let one of Adam's white fans give him, uh, you know, a bottle of champagne or something. And it, you know, it's just this racist incident that sets off the, his downward spiral. And he can't sort of reconcile the two things that the, you know, in the real world, there's, it's, the, you know, there's this horrible unfairness, this racially based unfairness, but, you know, because he's so used to this world in, in his clubs where everybody's the same. But it's not the events. It's just, it's literally the dialogue. Like, I hate how the, how this movie was written. That's what pissed me off. It wasn't that it was like, I mean, granted, it was definitely too much. But I could have dealt with that if the lines hadn't been so stilted and forced and terrible. I didn't see that at all. I mean, Ugh. you definitely get some, like, high camp lines in there. I, I thought there were some pretty witty dialogue, you know, when Adam is, you know, he keeps, like, sexually assaulting Claudia like <laughs> he's barely met her and he's already you know on top of her and he accuses her of being a virgin and saying don't your southern boys ever put down their picket signs and I literally laughed out loud at the end of the movie where the song plays and the lyrics are like he was born to blow a horn and all that jazz that's what the the level of dialogue in this is and also okay Claudia screw Claudia all right 
Cicely Tyson does a good job. And she has a lot of really interesting parts of this. And then it ends, this whole thing ends with this stupid that Adam cleans up his act and then he can't play the horn anymore because he stopped drinking or whatever. And she has this line about, I fell in love with a proud man and I lectured him and I neutered him and I took his manhood. What did I do to him? It's like, you saved him from suicide. Jesus, like, come on. It, of course, has to go back to this idea that Adam can only be a real man if he's a jerk, which ties back into this 1960s masculinity and, and this idea that, you know, that Adam, even as a drunken and, and raving uh, idiot, at least he had his pride, you know, and, and then the second that he goes soft because he lets a woman into his life again, oh, it all goes to shit, even though now he doesn't drink and he's happier. <laughs> I just I hate that. Yeah, but he's not a man anymore. He gave up his manhood for me. <sighs> yeah, and of course, it's the woman who says this and the woman who decides, oh, I have to leave him so he can be a real man again. And, and now that's the happy ending. Screw this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I agree. I'm, I did get impatient with how Claudia kept saying, if, if you do this, I'll, I'll never speak to you again. If you don't uh, behave yourself, I'll, you know, this is the last time you'll ever see me. And then she takes him back and like he has some drunken fit and does something horrible. And, you know, she just keeps taking him back. But that's, it's uh, how all these stories go. And it is. It's what know, women but... love, you know, Bart, <laughs> that's what women love. I got a little tired of the the ups and downs by the end of the movie, but the first hour I think is wonderful. But I mean, again, like there's some really strong acting. There are some, there's occasional good line. I actually like when Adam gets drunk and yells at Frank Sinatra Jr. about how the reason why black people play good music is because they have to steal a horn or they find a horn or they start from scratch and they and they make it up as they go along. Whereas white people get lessons, Mm -hmm. black people get no lessons. They just have their soul. And then he says, and then you've got it. It's like a, a kind of a bonding moment, but I kind of, I, I enjoyed that. <laughs> Even though that gets really heavy handed towards the yeah. end. It's like, <laughs> yeah, he, he, you know, the, the lower he sinks, the more soul he has and the better he plays the trumpet. But I like this movie. Seek it out. Don't listen to Jenna. <laughs> I actually, I would say seek it out because it's, I just think it's interesting that it exists in that if people are going to watch Ocean's Eleven 500 times, why the hell not this? Yeah, because it's not fun. <laughs> it's a bummer. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was rhetorical. <laughs> but Sammy Davis Jr. is terrific. He is that. terrific. He's really, really good. He's always terrific, quite frankly. But now we'll move on to a movie that you really liked. Uptight. This movie, Uptight, from 1968. Johnny. Johnny, I love you. I said, Johnny, buddy, I love you. The world is cold, man, but you're my friend. It's you and me, Johnny. Right to the Directed end. by Jules Dassin? Mm-hmm. You chose this because this was uh, an updated version of 1935's The Informer, which is a, it's actually about like the IRA, right? Right. Yeah. John Ford film. The book was written by Liam O'Flaherty. And I actually haven't seen that, but I still enjoy this a ton. Essentially, this is, um, it's The Informer. (laughs) But uh, this movie, um, you know, this is 68. So now we're at the end of the 60s here. And I think that you see the budget has increased. The cinematography here is... um, In color. This is, 
Yeah, it's just the last two. They're in color. I think everything else is black and white. I actually thought Man Called Adam had some great camera work, some really flashy, like self-conscious stuff in there, but we've moved on, so I, I won't mention that. So I thought that this updating from the IRA to the Black Power movement worked out really well. I was surprised at how well it translated to what was happening right then in 1968. I mean, Jules Dassin read the novel and said, oh, oh, oh my God, this is even more appropriate to what's happening now than what was happening uh, in the 30s in Ireland. So he, um, he co-wrote the screenplay with uh, Ruby Dee, who's also in it, and, uh, and Julian Mayfield, who plays the lead character Tank. Ruby yeah. Dee's really our MVP of this episode. She's been in like most of these movies. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, so it's essentially, it's about this guy Johnny, who is a black revolutionary it's kind of the, you get the sense that this group's kind of a black panthery type of group the film starts out with a it's in cleveland ohio it's interesting too i have to say just point out that we've been really around the u.s in these movies which i, I find really fascinating mm-hmm. considering everyone's in the same crappy place <laughs> north yeah. and south how how wonderful but yeah this starts out with the assassination of martin luther king jr and protesters rioting in the streets And this character, Johnny, who is this black revolutionary, shows up at the house of Tank, who is one of his friends from childhood and was meant to help. They they have planned, I guess, to steal a bunch of guns from a warehouse during this riot because it's good cover for them to get what they need. And they go to Tank and Tank's already drunk and he doesn't want to go. And he says, I feel like, you know, a, a part of me's died. He, he's been watching the Martin Luther King's funeral and, you know, they, they need him. They need this fourth man and Tank just won't do it. And they end up going and uh, essentially getting caught or at least caught enough that the, the cops see who it was. And then they put out this warrant for the arrest of Johnny. Well, they killed the guard accidentally but yeah the guards shoot at these guys who are stealing guns and and they shoot back so johnny has killed somebody and then it sort of turns into this really super interesting and and awesome like meeting of minds It, it turns into this like real philosophical wrestling of these two different groups that are now splitting in the wake of martin luther king's death where you have the group that wants to continue with nonviolence and working with white people, and then this, you know, more sort of black power group that is ready for guns and fighting back and doesn't want white help. And then Tank is sort of in the middle because Tank, his really is only he's he's this kind of a he's kind of a putz like I don't know how else to say it. He his loyalty is to his friend Johnny, but you know he kind of messes everything up. He's this deadbeat dad and he he can't really hold a job he's he gets drunk a lot and so now nobody really wants to work with tank and then when johnny comes to him in a moment of secrecy to tell him i want to see my mom before i split for good tank tells the group and they tell tank to screw off and and they tell him that johnny never liked you anyhow and tank then internalizes all of this on top of being useless in society as he is Uh, And then, you know, all the pressures of failing at masculinity and and the pressures of living in this white society. And so Tank then betrays Johnny and rats on him to the cops. For $1,000. And this movie is brilliant. I love this movie so much. Yeah. 
you can sort of feel the budget because it feels like a bunch of great scenes that are just very loosely tied together that they can't quite get from one scene to another that well. It had some storytelling issues, I thought, but I thought it just mostly, you know, the stuff that you're talking about now, the the philosophical concerns, it's the, you know, what we've been talking all along, the the nonviolence versus the rising up, to take your own power. You know, this movie handles it in really interesting ways. And I mean, Tank is a fighter. He's sort of, you know, he was, uh, you know, fought for whatever union all these guys were in. And he's he is a guy who's, who's willing to put up a fight, but he's not necessarily willing to kill people. And, and I think that he sort of really does take the death of Martin Luther King Jr. to heart. And, uh, you know, it's in that moment that he realizes that he's not, he loves Johnny and he wants to, like, be a part of this black power group, but he doesn't necessarily have what it takes to to kill for you know what he believes in, and so it's he's sort of struggling with this issue. I mean, he is he is just sort of a dopey guy, and he's not really in control of himself and his emotions. So he's you know you certainly you really you definitely understand why the revolutionaries don't trust him and don't want him to be a part of their group, but. These are all people he's called family all his life, and he really feels betrayed when they won't let him into the group. So, you know, in a moment of weakness, he informs on Johnny. You know, he doesn't even really know why. It's just sort of a split-second decision when he's not in his right mind, and, uh, you know, he never never suspected that Johnny would, would necessarily die. Well, it's interesting because they, the movie makes such a big point of Tank not understanding his own actions, but I think it's very obvious, at least to me, it was very obvious why he does it, uh, which again is because he gets told that Johnny doesn't even care about you and we don't care about you and you're, and you're useless. And, and where can he even go from there? I mean, at that point, there's literally nowhere else for him to go. So if that's what you all think about me, then fine, I'm, I'm going to get some power where I can take it. And that's in informing the cops. Right. It's actually a very specific incident when Johnny tells Tank that uh, he's going to go visit his mother. Tank says, well, I'll go tell the group. If you vouch for me, if you say that I, that I should be a part, if, if, if they hear it from you, they'll, they'll let me in. And, uh, and BG, the leader of the revolutionaries, says, no, Johnny told us do not let Tank be a part of the group. And that's when he felt betrayed by Johnny. You know, we, we have no way of knowing if Johnny actually said anything at all to the group about whether Tank should be a part of it or not. But uh, they're sort of using Johnny's name to say that, no, even this guy who's like a brother to you doesn't want you to be a part of what we're doing. That's why Tank felt so betrayed. And then there's this amazing scene in a funhouse. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god like my uh, my notes yeah. for that part of that movie is literally just <laughs> oh my god yes in all caps because it's this wonderful scene where tank is drunk and he's wandering around some fair there's like a, a little fair in town and he ends up with all these white people that are kind of looking at him like "Ooh, look at the black man they, they, they're all in good spirits so they're treating him well but they're also treating him kind of like an other and He's so drunk, he doesn't even give a crap. Then there's this just great scene where he's staring into these funhouse mirrors with this whole group of white people surrounding him. And he's talking into the mirror and everyone's faces are all warped. And it keeps changing mirrors and stuff. And he's talking about this alternative world. Because what do they ask him? They ask him something like, What's your plan? How are you going to take your power back from the 
the white people. Yeah, they're like teasing him. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's something he he says at some point, but they assume, oh, this guy must be part of the whole Black Power movement. Let's let's find out what their plan is to take back power. Are are we all going to die? Yeah, and he talks about uh, this alternative world where where like white people are second class citizens, and and he's going to kill them. And it's so good. It's like, it, it's really surreal. And Julian Mayfield is crushing it. But he's sort of a clown in this scene. They're all laughing at the things that he's saying. And because he's been, he's stretched and distorted in this mirror. And so are they. Nothing he's saying is, is being taken very seriously. And but then is. by the end, they're all a little disturbed. And, yeah. and that's what I loved about it is that it kind of builds and builds and builds. And then finally they get the answer that they wanted. That's what they were waiting to hear him say is, is you know, screw you essentially. And You're all going to Yeah, die. like we're, we just want to kill you. And so he, he just plays into it and says, fine, this is what you want to hear. This is what I'm going to tell you. And they're all, they're all totally freaked out by the end, even though they, they've been laughing up until then. And it's, it's a brilliant, it's just such a good just surreal scene in the middle of this film that honestly I think this movie is shot pretty beautifully there's there's some scenes that look like like renaissance paintings you know with, with a maybe a lower budget but the scenes where they're in this old bowling alley and sort of divided by the bowling lanes to the two camps of violent or nonviolent revolutionaries uh, it's, it's just fantastic and and the dialogue between the two of them is so good it's just so interesting it's it's there's no judgment on who's actually right or wrong about this issue of violence and nonviolence. Uh, I, I would say that probably leans a little more towards the the revolutionaries at this point especially in 68 but it's just such there they explain it so much better more articulately than I am right in this moment. <laughs> um, there's there's like a, a couple of great lines too. There's like that line where the nonviolent leader, he says, who should I talk to? Like if you're splitting off, who's your, who's the new leader of your group? And they say, there's no stars in this movement because they get killed off too quickly. And you're like, oh shit, yeah. <laughs> but then he also has that line about how a revolution is a plan and not a gun. And that violence is self-defeating and... and it's also true, unfortunately. And, and then, and yet, and then what do you do? It's just this sort of, it's this unanswerable question of how long can you, and can you take being treated this way? And at what point do you just slap back? You know, at what point do you, do you stop turning the other cheek? And it's just, it's, it's really engaging and interesting and sympathetic and, and non-judgmental intellectual conversation. I just like, I loved it. Yeah, I I didn't really have any expectations about this movie. It's not really discussed, and I'm not sure why. I mean, it, it's another independent production, but it was distributed by Paramount, so I imagine it actually hit a good number of theaters and just feel like it's something that should be talked about. I also want to bring up uh, Roscoe Lee Brown and, and that Clarence character, the gay character. Daisy is, is what uh, one of the guys calls him if we're going to talk about black masculinity this is the first time that uh, homosexuality is uh, you know gets entered into the conversation and unfortunately he's the bad guy and and that's pretty that's he's... like it seems like a very clear choice i mean he's not like a horrible person but he's working with the cops and he's happy to rat out uh, these revolutionaries and he's sort of flamingly gay in a way that just really comes across as uh, mildly homophobic <laughs> Well, except there's no, I mean, Tank doesn't have a problem with him anyway because of his sexuality. And he is, I mean, he's too flamboyant. And then when he's, you know, his boyfriend there, when they have a little pillow fight, it's uh, embarrassing. But I really like how 
Clarence is the one who sort of convinces Tank that he should be an informer. He should rat on Johnny because, you know, Clarence's justification is, well, they hate me already. They can't hate me any more than they already do because I'm gay. So why should I protect these people? And, right. and Tank sees the same situation in himself. Like, you know, I'm this person that nobody has any use for. Like we, nobody, nobody wants me to be a, a part of what they're doing. So what, what have I got to lose? I can't sink any lower. I might as well rat on Johnny and get the cash. So I think the idea is that when you're so low, you can't sink any lower. I, I don't think that's a judgment on homosexuality. It's, it's a judgment on how gay people are viewed in that community and in that time. And, but then you have that, that welfare officer who comes by Tank's girlfriend's house and he also, he talks the same way. He has this like mid-Atlantic accent the way that Clarence does. And it, it just felt kind of like the the fancy ones are, are the bad guys kind of thing. That was, I don't know. It was, I agree that this wasn't, this wasn't an outright um, condemnation of homosexuality, but it's definitely, it's like the type of thing where it's like all, you know, every time a, an Asian person is on screen, they're plotting something. <laughs> Like, that's kind of what it came across to me as. But, but yeah, no, I mean, it was interesting to, to be included. And, and I agree that he has, he has some layers, old Daisy. I mean, masculinity plays a, a pretty big part in this, especially with Tank. I mean, Tank's, again, trying to grasp for power. And it takes being let down by another man, by, by being told that this other man doesn't love him, is the ultimate betrayal for him uh, and what he's basing his whole life on. And... When when he hears that, the fact that he just will will sell him out for a couple bucks to drink it all away in one night, and uh, definitely masculinity is a big part of this. But I, I kind of thought that really that this movie was a little more about that philosophical wrestling of of what now, and then also I think maybe just the support of community, the importance of community, and the importance of not letting people fall through the cracks, and that these two sides, this this violent and nonviolent sides kind of needs to support each other and, and not split because you're weaker when you're divided, essentially. Well, I connected it uh, a lot to uh, the cool world and that being a man is, is sort of, you have to be a, a part of a gang. You have to like express your masculinity through... Uh, you know, if you can't take power any other way, you have to take it through violence and crime. And, you know, when you're left with no other choice, this is what you have to do to, to prove yourself as a man. Did you notice that uh, the scene at the fairground right before the mirror scene, the um, tank goes up against the, the quick draw cowboy? Yeah. The same way that uh, that Duke does in the, in the Cool World, and I just think that's an interesting metaphor that they that is used in both movies, and I and I wonder if Uptight is referring back to the Cool World there, but uh, a quick draw contest against this uh, the white man that the, that these uh, that these black characters who are sort of struggling for power and identity and, and you know rising up in society are both sort of engage in this quick draw fairground game. Yeah, that's it. That's interesting. But then again, I mean, cowboys are the ultimate men. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but then it's kind of funny that we go from a movie that's embracing black power in a lot of ways to The Learning Tree, which came out in 1969. And I think it's the most conservative of all the films we watched. It may be the most conservative film I've ever seen come out of 1969. Born in the due time. That's where a boy should grow. 
definitely was not a very good movie i didn't think it's it really felt it, it was a tv movie quality i thought i mean I, I understand that this movie is of historical interest because it's the first hollywood studio movie that's directed by a black man and he wrote it it's based on his semi-autobiographical novel and he produced it and he did the music for it gordon parks and then he did shaft <laughs> yeah <laughs> he's an interesting figure Gordon Parks but this movie was just felt really tepid to me and it deals with some pretty like shocking ideas there's quite a bit of murder in it and you know Newt the main character the, the stand-in for Gordon Parks I guess uh, it's set in the 20s about these kids growing up in in Kansas as Gordon Parks did basically about two boys it's about Newt who is the good boy <laughs> Because he comes from a good family. Yeah. Supportive mother and father who, who teach him the difference between right and wrong. and Right. Unlike Marcus, who is, you know, a contemporary and yet grows up in, in completely different circumstances in that his he only lives with his father, who's a drunk and abusive guy. And he's a violent kid who doesn't have respect because he doesn't get treated with respect. And the film kind of opens with him and Newt and a, a bunch of other boys deciding to go steal some apples from a white farmer's orchard. And when the white farmer catches them, Marcus ends up beating the life out of them and, um, uh, and putting him in the hospital. And then the cops are going after Marcus, essentially. And, and most of this movie is just kind of about how Newt and Marcus, just how their lives unfold because of their upbringings even though they both are from the same place and, and they're both black and they're both dealing with similar circumstances and, and poverty, they it's just that one has support from the home and the other doesn't. In the opening scene, you, um, they see a, a, a cop shoot another black man in the water in the back and he just sinks to the bottom of the lake and they kind of are real lackadaisical about, ah, we'll get the body eventually. And they make the kids, they pay them a couple coins to go swim the water and, and get the body and, and drag it back up. So there's definitely a lot of violent Southern things happening in this small town America. Some of that was, was what I thought was interesting about this movie, because there's a lot of depiction of the sort of banality of racism and there's no outright hatred expressed in this film that I can think of uh, by white characters. Well, yeah, the fat cop is a huge racist. Oh, he's no, there's a ton of racism, but it, he only hates Marcus because Marcus keeps taunting him. But he kind of just acts like, well, that's what you do to him. It's like that kind of attitude of just, well, he ran, so I shot him, as opposed to, uh, you know, he was evil and we were going to go, you know, that's like this just the really sort of mundane attitude towards how you deal with black people. Well, there's also the institutionalized racism, like when Newton Arcella go into the, uh, the corner shop with Chauncey, the the white boy, and the soda jerk kicks him out, says you can't drink that your soda's in here. That was hateful. <laughs> I mean, it does, it feels kind of realistic. Like, what's interesting is this, it seems like it's a, such a black community that they're living in, that the black people in this area 
are still you know subject to segregation, but because of the the balance, because they're not a minority, perhaps it's um, I think just because they've been farmers in this in this area for so long that they can take certain liberties that black people in other parts of the country in the South would not have, and they're they're not treated with the, the harsh racist attitudes that people in other places were. But clearly, the white people make the law here, that's for, for sure. Uh, I mean, the, the, not just the racist white cops, but the judge who's actually, you know, Newt's mother cleans the judge's house. Well, not only does the son of this white judge rape Newt's girlfriend and get her pregnant, but he's... You get the sense that that kid is just kind of doing it because he thinks he can. There's this real casualness to him. But I do immediately now take back the thing about that there's not uh, that much hate expressed because I forgot the ending of this film, <laughs> which is about a mob of people screaming about how they're going to lynch uh, a guy and so he shoots himself. And then the judge has a teaching moment because this happens in the middle of a courthouse after a murder and they're trying to figure out who did it. And Newt saw it and he doesn't want to tell them because he's worried that people are going to freak out like they do and kill a bunch of black people because that's what his parents told him happened last time there was trouble that was caused by someone who was black. I mean, it is interesting how it sort of feels like there's not as much racism because it seems like on a day-to-day basis, our main characters don't really have to deal with very much directed hate from white people. But then when, it, you know, push comes to shove, the white people show their true colors and, uh, and uh, no pun intended, and they express their hate and, you know, they get outraged at this murder trial. That's the whole, the climactic part of this movie, that it was actually a black man who killed the white farmer rather than another white man. You know, they instantly turn into this rabid mob looking to lynch somebody. I just wanted to make the distinction one more time that I think that there's a distinction in a weird way about hate and racism. There's a ton of racism. Like all the white people in this movie are super racist. Except the doctor. The the white doctor is very kind and never expresses even a hint of Newt's family being second class or anything. You don't know what's in his heart. Well, except he's, you know, <laughs> offers to drive Sarah home and he seems like he legitimately just you know, race does not matter to this guy at all. I just, I think it's interesting when you listen to people, especially um, in documentaries or, or you read quotes uh, about people looking back on these sort of things now, or even people who have, you know, racist relatives, which is the vast majority of people and you sort of talk to people about this and you're like well that's such a sweet person and yet they would say xyz really racist thing and i think that that's kind of what was interesting about this movie is that even this own film kind of acknowledges that like racism is this unconscious it's a fully conscious in the sense that you are actively participating in a society that's supporting it and yet at the same time, these aren't people that are thinking constantly like, well, I hate blacks, so I'm going to do this. They're just thinking, well, that's the way it is. You know, that, that's how society will work. And if, if we don't have that, then society crumbles. You know, it's this sort of they've, they've justified it in their heads to a point where to them, it's not coming from a place of hate, even though it is if it is racist, it is hateful inherently. And so I thought that was kind of there's an interesting nuance to this movie in that sense. At the same time, it kind of felt like a John Hughes movie to me. Like, I I agree that it was kind of like a made-for-TV movie. It was, you know, a little too 
saccharine in some ways and then also like wildly violent in other ways but i i liked marcus yeah a lot marcus gets to talk about how much he hates white people all the time which i thought was really interesting and effective to have a character just openly say i hate white people and i love that scene where he's in jail and a bunch of these black preachers come and they tell him pray to jesus and they try to give him this card and say one day you're going to understand you don't you know don't hate the white man and and he like throws it back in their face. He says like, "Yeah, I don't want your white trash God." And I was like, "Oh shit!" Like, <laughs> get it, Marcus? You know, like it. It was really powerful and interesting that Marcus can't not see this. Everyone else is is, is sort of blind to this because they're accepting that this is the society that they live in, and yet. All Marcus can see is I'm black and you're white or you're a fool for believing white people. And because of this, he can't participate in society. And because of that, he ends up on this path of, you know, what, you know, is pretty obvious where he's going to end up. And it's sad. You know, you, you actually I, I think Marcus is the most sympathetic character, whereas Newt is almost unbelievably like a good Christian boy in, in a lot of ways. Newt is sort of. He has these sort of disproportionate reactions to bad events. He's a little too serene to be believable for me. Yeah, he's just a sickly nice guy. There's nothing. Marcus is definitely where most of the interest is in this movie. And, you know, once again, here's a movie setting up the whole X versus King thing. Where right. Do we rise up or do we cooperate and, uh, you know, work together to get what we want? But here? it ends. This movie definitely ends in in a very clear Nonviolence is the only way, I thought, which is why this movie feels really conservative. Yeah. Which is a bummer. Well, and also it's just very clearly trying to be To Kill a Mockingbird. It hits all the same beats. It, uh, you know, swaps some genders and swaps some skin color, but uh, it's basically just sort of a, a To Kill a Mockingbird retread, and that was part of what I held against it. As much as I love To Kill a Mockingbird, that's a pretty conservative story. It's celebrating the nobleness of small-town life, anyway. Yeah, I can totally see that. But mostly I just... It was just a little too sappy for me, in spite of all the murder and prostitution and you know underage sex. Does and, you get raped in the first five minutes of this movie? Yeah. <laughs> Oh, I got the sense that this movie kind of had to be conservative because Gordon Parks, he got a lot of shit from the studios while shooting this. And I just feel like at the point where they even allowed a black guy to direct a movie about being black in America, of course, they had to set it in the 20s. They couldn't make it contemporary. Of course, that it has to have this very clear uh, nonviolent message. You know, it's like it, it felt like it needed to be conservative in order to even have gotten made at this level. So I can kind of give it some slack there. But I agree, this was a little underwhelming, but it's not bad. No, it's got a nice feel. I do like all the glowing outdoor shots. Makes Kansas look really pretty. It hooked me a little emotionally at the end, like the last 10 minutes. But otherwise, not so much. I like that the white cop was always like a sweaty (laughs) mess. In every single one of these movies, he's fat and sweaty and racist. Yep. So I thought this was a great group of films that you chose here. A lot of them were new to me, too. Just things that have been on my list for a while. And honestly, it was just an excuse to watch Nothing But a Man again. (laughs) And I'm not sure I did a great job selling that. But if you seek out one movie from this group, 
that we've just discussed. Make it uptight. Make it nothing but a man. You won't be sorry. Unless you're Jenna. Uptight was the best. Wait, didn't you start by saying Raisin in the Sun was the best? Raisin in the Sun was like the most well-rounded. Uptight was more my style. Yeah. Uptight was a, was a really pleasant surprise for me. Apparently Barry Jenkins had tweeted about that last year and gave it a signal boost. Maybe that's why it was on my radar, whereas it never had been before. So I don't know. So this was a really fascinating journey to kind of go through, to see again that these movies really navigate the U.S. from the Midwest to the North and the South. It's interesting to see that there were even movies being made, even though unfortunately the vast majority of these were pretty low budget and clearly didn't have too much to work with or, or didn't definitely didn't get a wide audience. But the acting was really solid throughout. The films are really awesome and they're definitely worth a, a second look. I don't know what you can really... I mean, I guess you can glean a bit what was happening with the civil rights movement at the time just through the lens of these movies, but... What I come away with is that, you know, finally these stories are getting told. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I feel like it kind of, in, in some ways, it kind of comes back to this idea of why was the civil rights making strides in the 60s and why was this all boiling over? And I think it, it goes back to that whole thing about the 1950s and, and World War II and, and how society kind of did this snapback. And, you know, the people making these movies are children that were born in the 40s. They grew up in that rigidity of the 50s. And then they start to openly question it by the 60s when they're in college. And, you know, this is now the time where people are interested in talking about this and, and white people are interested in talking about this. That's kind of what, you know, why all of this stuff ended up you know, making big strides in the 60s is because I think that you had to sort of rebel against that falseness that the, the 50s was trying to put on people and it was too much pressure. And I think that masculinity definitely is a major tie-in as to why people started to get upset is, oh, this is what a man's meant to be? Well, then what the heck? <laughs> I don't get any of this and I'm getting kicked in the face, you know, like it's so... In some ways, I think that it all kind of ties together. Yeah. World War II really just you know, shook up society. And the immediate response was this, at least in America, was just this ultra-conservative society. But I think that you know, just the shakeup of World War II and the, you know, this, this next generation sort of rebelling against the conservatism of, of their parents and you know, the previous generations, like it's just... You know, we see it in the in the types of movies that are getting made. We're seeing it in all the you know, social progress that happened in the 60s. And um, I think that big war that happened was just a, was, was a great big pendulum swing. And it uh, made a big swing in, in one direction. And then, uh, then we sort of have reaped the benefits in the 60s of it swinging back in the other. Totally. I'm raising an audio fist right now. <laughs> Bart and Jenna, the, the ineffectual white guys. Showing solidarity. You've been listening to Cinema 60 with Bart DeLauro and Jenna Ipcar. The theme song is Io la conoscevo bene by Piero Piccione. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's cinema-60.com. And follow the show on Twitter at Cinema60Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.